are the King of Kings, Lord. What a joy that we can give you praise. Every nation and tribe come to worship you, Lord. It's a joy to give you praise, Lord.
So today we're carrying on again with our series on identity, and we're talking about being known by God, being known by God. And, uh, you know, I think the issue of identity is something that's so close to us and very real to all of us. And uh, it's been wonderful just to get some responses from people over the series and as we've been talking about it, and what does it mean to different people? Um, and I, and I want to go back to that, that pivotal question that we as humans can ask, and that is that question, who am I? And how do you determine who you are? Um, you know, am I a father? Am I a husband? Am I a son? Am I a leader? Am I a follower? Am I a citizen? Who am I? What, by what do I define myself? The truth is, I am a father because I have children. I am a husband because I have a wife. I, I'm, a, I'm a son because I have a parent still alive, my mom. I'm a leader because I lead people and there's people that follow. I'm a follower because I follow other people. I'm a citizen because I'm part of a nation. And so all of that tells me is part of who I am to answer that question, who am I, is in relation to other people and uh, how other people view me. And um, it is one of the big considerations when we talk about this issue of identity is, is my identity shaped by what others view me to be? It's the, the idea of Ubuntu, which says, I am because you are. It's this idea that my identity, who am I, is actually what other people see me to be. If I want to know who I am, I've got to know what other people think of me, how other people see of me. And that certainly has a lot of relevance in our lives, and that certainly is a, is a big part of who our identity is. But is that totally what our identity is, what other people see and, and think of when they look at us, what they see in us? Or is our identity perhaps more self-determined? Is my identity my choice? Is who I am, is that actually more dependent on my independent choices and who I am as a person? Like, like what Carl, Carl Jung said when he said, I am, um, uh, I am not what happened to me, I am what I choose to become. So where perhaps the first thought that I, we shared about, you know, I am because you are, talk, talks to us about external forces that form our identity, Carl Jung says, no, it's not external forces, it's internal forces. It's your choices. You are not the result of what happened to you and your environment. You are the result of what you choose and how you choose to think and feel and respond in situations. I cannot be defined by others. I have to define myself. And I think in our culture and in our day and all around us, you'll, you'll, you'll hear both points of view brought at us. And so when we, you know, when this little inner voice is speaking to myself and, and trying to find an answer for this question of who am I, it will draw on, I think, both of these realities, doesn't it? It, it draws on what does other people think of me? And that can be very important in my life. I don't think there's actually one person on this planet, despite people's bold proclamations that they don't care what other people think of them. I don't think that's true. I think every person at some level, probably some more than others, but every person at some level does take feedback from what other people think and does respond to the stimulus that they get from other people. You know, but there's also the part of us that we're trying to be my real true self. And who is that real true self? And, and I construct myself by my choices and my thoughts. And so, so, you know, I don't think it's an either or, it's a both and. Those two probably work together, but in different people's lives, different cultures, they we emphasize one more than the other or whatever, but we, we, those forces really work on us in terms of our identity. So who am I? Am I what you think I am? 
Or am I who I think I am? Or am I a combination of the two? What does the scripture say about this? Who am I? How do I answer that question? Who am I? And I want to take you to two just wonderful scriptures that reveal something very important to us. In Galatians 4, verse 8 to 9, Paul writes to the church in Galatians, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. And that's what in the first series we spoke about, you know, how we can use the, tra the traditional uh, identity markers or even the modern identity markers, any identity markers that you can find, and we can use them to shape our lives, but they can ultimately enslave us because we put too much trust and stock in them. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? And here Paul does an interesting thing where he says, now that you know God, then he corrects himself, he stopped. And for dramatic effect and for punctuation of, of importance and, and making sure we understand what he's saying, he's, he says this, or rather are known by God. Now that you know you are known by God. That's a very powerful thing. Just think about it. You are known by God. In 1 Corinthians 13 verse 12, we read the same statement. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. Some translations will say fully known. So right now, you and I live in a world where we know partially. We know some things. We don't know everything. And even the things that we know, we know that partially. We don't know everything about anything. We, no matter how much we've studied, we will never know everything perfectly because we, we, we don't have that capacity in our fallen state. And there's also this reality, as somebody once said, I see the world not as it is, but as I am. Everything we see through the filters of how we view ourselves and what we think of ourselves. And that's not a perfect view. So we see in part. But what is fully known and what is fully seen is God who sees me. I am fully known. There may be things about God that feels hidden to me. That, that I struggle to understand. That I don't know. There may be things that in this world that I don't grasp completely. But the truth is, there's nothing about me that God doesn't know. There's no mystery in me towards God. God doesn't scratch his head when he looks at any of us and go, you know, I, that's surprising. Because he knows us. You are fully known. Do you know this? That there's not been a moment that you have lived that you've not been fully known. Even at your most loneliest moments. Even at those moments where perhaps like, you know, when at school, you know, when the kids are choosing teams for a sport. Some, you know, like they're going to play soccer during break or during PT period or whatever. And they divide up by teams, you know, and they do that terrible thing of each, each captain chooses one. And you end up being the person last. And so begrudgingly the last guy says, okay, oh, we'll take you. Even when you at that moment feel like you're not seen. 
Or when, you, when you've been working so hard at your job and it comes time for a promotion and you really feel like you have put yourself in the hat and you really should be the one that is looked at and you're overlooked. Or, or when you really feel like, you know, there's a relationship that you value and that person overlooks you. Whenever we have felt our most lonely and alone, thinking that, does anybody even know me? Does anybody even see me? The scripture tells us we are fully known by God. He knows us. And there's actually so many occasions in scripture where we see that. I want to take you to one such occasion where we see where we are privileged to sit in on a conversation that's happening. It's recorded for us. It's like a you know, it's like a, a, a movie or a TV show that's playing out in front of us, and we get to watch this dialogue between two people as they're talking. And as we view this dialogue, it's a very well-known story. I'd like us to view it today with some of the identity issues that we've been discussing in mind and some of the identity markers and how they play out in this story. And it's the occasion where Jesus sits with the woman at the well in John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman. I want us to read through this story. I'm just going to comment as we read and, and, and just give us a bit of perspective in terms of identity and, th and how she experienced being fully known by God and the impact that it had on her life. Let's read John 4, verse 4 to 7. Now he had, had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. And here the conversation begins in verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So can you see right here in the story some of the identity markers that she is using in this conversation? She is busy identifying Jesus, and she's expressing parts of her self-identification. She mentions two things in particular. She, she uses the ethnicity, race, nationality. You remember the first identity marker that we spoke about two weeks ago? And she says, you are a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. So there's, a, there's a, a box that she puts herself in and Jesus is in. And as it happens, that identity marker means that they shouldn't be having a conversation. They shouldn't be, Jesus shouldn't be talking to people because he fits into that ethnicity and she fits into this ethnicity. They shouldn't be having a conversation. Secondly, he's a man, Jewish man. She's a Samaritan woman. That means all the more it's completely taboo that they are having this conversation. So can you see how she's framing her world? She's not seeing the world as it is. She's seeing the world as she is. She's framing this whole event through identification, self-identification and the identification of another person right here. And she's responding in this situation based on her perceptions of Jesus and based on her thoughts about herself. And at this point, she's using external identification markers. Things that are external to Jesus and external to herself. So she's classifying according to external realities. Then Jesus says to her in John 10, Jesus answered her, 
If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you the living water. So in a sense, what Jesus is saying to her, I know there's more to what Jesus is saying, but in one level, what he's saying to you is, you are misidentifying me. He says, if you knew, if you knew the gift of God and who is it, it is that is asking you for a drink. He says, you are identifying me in a certain way, but I am not who you identify me to be. You are stereotyping me. You are pigeonholing me in a certain grouping of people, which is true about Jesus. He is a Jew and he is a male, so he's not lying, but there's more to it. There's more to Jesus than what she can perceive, if you knew. And I mean, this is not new for Jesus, that this would happen to him, that this woman would misidentify him. In fact, John 1 verse 10 says the following, He was in the world, speaking about Jesus, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Jesus, actually, his whole life is about not being recognized, not being seen. Not being identified for who he is. Even though his fingerprints are over all of everything around us. Everything we look at was made by Jesus. Everything carries his markers. It carries who he is in it. In, in the natural order of things. You know, the trees, the, the plants, the humans made in his image. Even though we've got so many clues. Even though you know, we've got so many markers that, that we could draw from. When Jesus himself walks among us, we don't recognize him. And Jesus experienced this all the time. Remember when, when, the, when the scripture tells us that, 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 that as a prophet, he wasn't recognized in his own hometown even. People misidentify him all the time. So if you, wanna, if you want at times to feel like people don't know you, people don't recognize you for who you really are, you've got something in common with Jesus. He just It went far broader for him than you and I will ever experience. He knows what that feels like. He knows what it means to be misidentified, to be, to be uh, stereotyped, categorized incorrectly. And therefore, he challenges the woman in a very gentle way. He says, if you knew who it is that's talking with you. Now, Jesus didn't have a need to validate himself. He didn't need her to recognize him for who he was so that he could feel Secure in his identity. He knew who he was. He was secure in his identity. But the issue was, if she didn't recognize him for who he was, she couldn't receive from him what he could give her. That's the honor principle. If, if, if Jesus is only honored as a teacher that has good teachings, then that's all we can receive from him. We can't receive salvation. If we recognize him as the Savior, we can receive his good teachings and salvation. Because what you recognize is what can impact your life. And that's why Jesus is drawing her in, wanting her to step over these identification limitations that she has so that something profound can happen. In verse 11, Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his son and his sons and his livestock? Here she goes a little further and uses some more identity markers, external identity markers. She looks at Jesus, and he doesn't look like a particularly influential man. He doesn't have a lot. He's got nothing. Can't even draw his own water. He's not a wealthy man. He doesn't appear to her to be a wealthy man, influential, important person. What she is seeing, though, is a person that obviously thinks he's important. 
that thinks he's got some say about something and that has some influence. So she's trying to say to him, listen, this is what I see. You're not behaving in line with what I see. There's, there's a discrepancy here. I identify you as this. You obviously self-identify as something different. And that doesn't fit for me. It doesn't align. And that's a very important reality in life, isn't it? That so often plays out in our relationships. When we, com- when we, when we have a relationship with another person. When what we see of them and what they see of themselves doesn't align, relationships become difficult and strained. And sometimes it is because what we see is not the full picture. And sometimes it's not because what they self-identify as is also not the full picture. And sometimes it's a bit of both. But here this is being experienced by Jesus and this woman. And she sort of wants to bring Jesus back into this stereotype that she has of him. He's a Jewish man with no great wealth, no real influence. Why is he talking with her? Why is he intruding, in a sense, in her space? He shouldn't be talking with her. She's coming in the middle of the day, and I I think you've known, heard the stories often why she came in the middle of the day, because she didn't feel comfortable to come at the time when the other women would come and draw water, because they would gossip about her, and she wasn't a good woman of good repute. And here she comes, she just wants to quietly come and draw water, and now this man is having a conversation with her, and it just doesn't fit. It doesn't fit what she understands and how things are to be. Verse 13, Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And right at this point, I think Jesus is moving this conversation to a whole different level. And she's struggling to keep up, as we'll see. It's like she's talking about physical water. Jesus is starting to talk about metaphysical realities. She's talking about just her daily needs. Jesus is starting to talk about her fundamental needs. She's talking about what gives her identity in this earth. He wants to talk to her about her real and true identity uh, as he created her to be. Remember, she was created by Jesus. So Jesus is having a conversation with one of a person that he created, that he, that he thought of, that he planned, that he purposed. So He's having this conversation, and he wants to elevate the conversation. He wants to bring her to that place. We say there's, there's more to life. They are th- and it makes me think of that statement that Jesus made when he was tempted by Satan, when Jesus said to Satan, man shall not live by bread alone. She wanted to just live by bread, in this case water, but you understand the analogy. She wanted to live on that level. Just, just meet my daily needs. Just, just, you know, I just need to carry on with my life. But Jesus is wanting to give her the bread of life, the water of life that you'll never thirst again. But this is difficult for her to understand. In verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. So she's saying, okay. like Typically, like Jesus is some kind of salesman that's got some wonderful thing that he can buy her. You know, like if you buy this amazing vacuum cleaner, you'll never, you know, have problems with your carpets again. And, and we'll, it'll clean your house like nothing else, and it'll save you time. And, and she's like, okay, that's what Jesus is doing. He's trying to give her something, you know. And she says, well, give it to me. If, if you've got such a wonderful thing that I don't have to come and, come and get water again out here, fantastic, you know. Give it to me. That's the level where she is. And so Jesus changes gears again. 
And now he moves from the external identification markers and what she's shaping her life on, the external things. Now he moves to the internal things more. And he asks her a question. Go call your husband and come back. And this is the moment where it suddenly gets very real. Because by that question, what Jesus is doing is he's moving right into the center parts of her self-identification. Of such a big part of how she saw herself. And how her life was shaped. The reason she's there in the middle of the day drawing water. Jesus is coming into that. That which is shaping her life. He's, he's beginning to, to prod into that space. So he asks, go call your husband and come back. She says, I have no husband. I have no husband. So there's a, I can almost, you know, see it. There's like a little bit of a, a quieter answer that she gives. I have no husband. You know, before that she was you know, quite forceful with Jesus and it had a lot of bravado. But at this moment, she probably just stepped back. I have no husband. As the shame of that situation, the pain of what Jesus was touching started welling up inside of her. Verse 17. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands. And the man you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Jesus says, you are right. Because now they're coming to the truth. Where in the beginning of the conversation, they were so far apart. Jewish man, Samaritan woman. All the identity markers, they were so separate. They had nothing in common. But Jesus just crossed over that divide. And he says to her, you are right. He affirms her. He agrees with her. He he knows he stepped into a place that is painful for her. And he does it with affirmation. With conviction, not condemnation. He says, you are right. And then he, he picks, you know, it's like he, they've agreed on the reality now. But now Jesus digs into that reality. And out of the sort of, you know, covered by the, the mist of that situation, he reveals the fullness of what's really going on in her life. And he says, you've had five husbands. And now the man you're with is not your husband. Now we don't know why she's had five husbands. It could be because she's just been really bad at relationships. You know, that no relationship worked because she's just a difficult person. It could be that she'd had five terrible husbands that, were, that she ran away from or abusive was abusive to her. It could be that she was just a very loose woman with, and, and a, a very per, a person that just needed new men in her life all the time. We don't know. But what we do know is it was painful. We do know this caused her great social anxiety in terms of everybody knew she wasn't held in high regard, therefore she, she was looked down upon. She was a bit of a pariah in their society. And she, she felt that and she behaved accordingly with that. She carried the shame of that. She carried the pain of that experience 
And so it is amazing how Jesus lifts that up and holds that up in front of him. Says, this is who you are. This is part of your internal identity. This is part of how you self-identify. This is the truth. You are right. Again, it's right. She's a Samaritan. She's a woman. So he's not saying those things were lies. But he says, now we're getting a little bit deeper to who you are. And then she responds in verse 19. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Amazing. Now she's starting to see Jesus in a different light. Where before he was just a Jewish man with no real wealth or influence or power. She now begins to take a step note, a notice and now she reclassifies him. She re-identifies him and says, I see you're a prophet. Because he could reveal to her things in her own life, she recognizes he's a prophet. Now she changes the conversation and moves from the physical reality into a metaphysical reality and moves from talking about everyday sustenance of life things and now she comes into the spiritual. Now she sort of asks the spiritual question. She's like typically like people, you know, that, that so I so often experience and I know people that are in the ministry experience and Christians may experience, you know, when you, when you meet somebody somewhere and, and they ask what you do, it's always like, <gasps> I, I take a breath when somebody asks me that question like on an airplane or something and I say, okay, I'm a pastor because I know what's coming next. It's something like, you know, first of all, they'll tell you about some family member that they have that's a minister or a pastor, or they'll tell you about some bad experience they had, or, or they'll start asking you questions about, well, how can you believe in God because, you know, and creation or, or whatever. And she does the similar thing now. Now she's like, okay, I've always had some questions about faith issues. Now I'm going to, you know, if you're a prophet, you're going to answer these for me. And, and she's in a sense, again, still testing, prodding. So she says, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship him in the spirit and in truth. What she was really asking Jesus and building up to is who's right? Samaritans or Jews? She obviously thought as a Samaritan they were right. This is where we're supposed to worship Jesus. She wanted some identification that would, in, that would cause for the Samaritans to be included to fit in, to be able to be identified as part of the kingdom of God, and that they had a right and they had a privileged position so that her identity as a Samaritan would give her value because they are supposed to worship on this mountain. But Jesus says to her, ultimately, you're getting it completely wrong. It doesn't help you identify with a mountain or even with Jerusalem as a Jew because those things cannot ultimately give you the affirmation you're looking for. What gives you the affirmation you're looking for is he says the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. What he's saying to her is, is your worship is not about where it happens. Your worship is about how it happens and with whom it happens. And he's bringing you into the space to understand that the ultimate reality is your relationship with God. That God wants a relationship with you. He's saying to her, it, it's not so determinative where you come from. 
It's not so determinative what your religion is. Not so determinative what your ethnicity is, what your gender is. Those things aren't as determinative. What is determinative in your life and should be is that you can have a relationship with the Father. That God knows you and you can know him. And you can worship not what you do not know, but what you know. Because what you do not know, you cannot worship. That's why we always say, worship is a response to a revelation. My worship is stirred by my increasing knowledge of who God is. Experiential knowledge, not just mental knowledge. The more I encounter God, the more I, God becomes real to me, the, the greater the worship in my life is stirred. And He becomes more real to me through the Word and through my engagement with Him, my relationship with Him, my encounters with Him. Then the worship flows because then it's worship in spirit. And in spirit has this overtone, there's more to it, but it has this overtone of it's not about a place. It's not worship is confined to a special place. Worship is all of my life. My whole life is worship to the Lord because he is spirit and I am spirit. And everywhere we go, we can connect. We are not bound to a location. We are not bound to some physical reality. We are worshiping God wherever we go. And in truth is, we're worshiping God in the truth of who He is, but also from the truth of who we are. We cannot worship God if we don't know Him, and ultimately we cannot worship God if we don't know who we are. Because if we don't know who we are, we will not know who God is. If we misidentify ourselves, we will not identify God because we're made in His image. And so it works the other way around also. The more we identify God, the more we will be able to identify ourselves. And that's what Jesus is saying to her. He's saying to her, you, my dear, you have been made by me for relationship with the Father. And the Father is inviting you. Whether you're a Samaritan, whether you're a woman, whether you are of ill repute, whether you have had much pain and disappointment in your life, none of those things ultimately matter because God is saying, come, have a relationship with me. Let me reveal you to you because I know you. That's why her response is so remarkable. She said, I know that the Messiah is coming. See, now she's starting to say, Perhaps there's more to this guy. He's not just a prophet. Now she elevates him even more. Perhaps he is the Messiah. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. She says, well, I know when the Messiah comes, he'll tell us who's right, the Jews or the, or the Samaritans. But Jesus says to her, what I'm telling you is right because I am the Messiah. Jesus is cutting through all the misidentification, all the errors and the, and the, and the stereotype. Cutting through all of it and he's saying, I am he. Identify me for who I am. I am the Messiah. Because if you identify me for who I am, you will be able to begin to see yourself for who you are. At that point, however, the conversation is broken because the disciples return. And they're not part of this conversation. So they've not journeyed from asking for water to the place of life-giving water. So they go right back to the sort of, you know, where the conversation started in in. in in, in you know, its, its reality. And it says, Then the disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. 
So right there, they do the same stereotyping. Jesus, woman, this shouldn't be happening, but none of them are brave enough to ask Jesus. So, But no one asks, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? You shouldn't be talking with her, Jesus. But they knew enough by now to know that Jesus does things that you know, they shouldn't even bother to ask him. But why are you doing this? And at that point, the woman leaves because she's now feeling uncomfortable. These other men have come. But this is what happens. Leaving her water jar. The reason she came to that well, she leaves there. The woman went back to the town and said to the people, listen to this. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? She at least thinks it's possible that Jesus could be the Messiah based on this, that he knows me. He knows me. Come and see a man that told me everything I ever did. Now, I don't know if it's true that they had a much longer conversation that's not recorded for us, where Jesus systematically talked about her life, or whether it's just that is what she experienced. When Jesus cut right through the heart of the matter and, and, and touched on her greatest pain and, the, and sort of that part of her identity that is so determinative in her life, even though it's hidden and covered in guilt and shame, it's the thing that's like, like her whole life gets shaped around that reality and she couldn't know what to do with it because she's obviously kept trying to have better relationships because she's had five husbands and now she's given up on marriage and now she's just living with a man. So she's really trying to, you know, to looking for something but she's not finding it, and, and, but it's continuously shaping her life. She didn't know what to do about it. It's like this big issue in her life. But Jesus comes and lifts it out, not to embarrass her, not to shame her, but to say to her, I know you, and I still want you to know me. He's not saying, I know you, and therefore I don't want you to know me, or I don't want to know more of you. I don't want, he's not saying there must be a separation. Because you are such a failure in this area, I, we can't have a relationship. Jesus is saying, I know you, but I want you to know me also. Come, come into a relationship with me. And that's her experience of the Messiah. That's this amazing moment that happens. And it's, by the way, it's, it's so true that it's being known by God that leads to us wanting to share that with others. Being known by God leads to worship and to evangelism. If I know that God knows me and he loves me and he knows the reality of me, then that's what I want to share with others. I want them to know the comfort of being known. There's a story that is told in the, the Narnia Chronicles written by C.S. Lewis. In the voyage of the dawn treader, there's this occasion where Eustace Clarence Scrub uh, wanders off to avoid doing his chores and enters a dragon's den. Greedily plundering the treasures, he finds himself turned into a dragon. Aslan the lion comes to the rescue and undragons him, which results in the transformation of the odious Eustace into a different boy. Following the incident, Eustace asks his cousin Edmund what, what he knows of Aslan. But who is Aslan? Do you know him? Edmund admits to knowing Aslan. But the beginning of his answer is, is inverted in a surprising way. And he says this. Well, he knows me. And that's one of the greatest truths that must be the thing that is so central to us 
our lives is that God knows me. What a privilege, what a joy to know that you are known. Because you cannot feel like you belong if you're not known. You can't fit in if you're not known. If, if there are things in our lives that we always keep hidden and secret from, and nobody else knows, knows them, we'll never belong. We'll never fit in anywhere. We'll always be afraid that somebody finds out. We'll always be holding something back. We'll all be, always be creating some distance. It's like in a marriage when, when there's some secret that is in a marriage between a husband and wife. That thing starts creating distance because now they're no longer united. And in any relationship, what a privilege it is that Jesus comes and he says, I know you. You are known by me. And, and I wish through this camera today I could look every single person that's with me right and, and speak to you as an individual. Say, God knows you. And that forms the foundation of your real relationship with him. That because he knows you, you can find rest in him. You can find restoration in him. You can find deliverance in him. You can find healing in him. Because he knows you. I can come. And it's like, you know, when, when Jesus was, was with Peter, you know, after Peter disowned Jesus and Jesus asked him, do you love me? He asked him three times. Eventually, you know what Jesus, Peter said? He said, Lord, you know. It's amazing that at times in my life, I feel so inadequate. I failed so miserably at something. I feel so disappointed. But then I just come in with the Lord and I say, Lord, you know. And from there, the Lord shows me who I am. Who I am in Him. So I want to encourage you with these very practical things to do. If you want to know yourself better, come to the Father. Have a relationship with the Father. Give Him the right to have a truthful relationship with you. In spirit and in truth. That's what repentance and confession is. It's being honest with God. Telling him that which he already knows. It's not a surprise to him. He already knows it. But when I agree to it, when I own up, he then can give me his perspective. He can heal me. He can set me free. Freedom comes because I'm known by God. If I'm... I will never be free until I know that I'm fully known by God. That's why Paul could say, I'm free and I owe no man nothing. Because he was not doing what he needed to do to gain other people's acceptance of his identity, externally or internally. I'm not shaped by what others think of me. I'm not shaped by what I think about myself. I'm shaped by who God says I am. And that comes about because I spent time with the Father. I come and be honest with him. I give him opportunity to talk to me. Through his word, I read the word. Through prayer, I pour out my heart before him. I speak to him. And he responds and he speaks. And he works. And you may say to me today, Pastor Louis, but I've spent time with the Lord and, and I'm struggling. I'm not hearing his voice. I want to tell you, keep going. Keep going. Keep pouring out your heart before him. He will speak. Sometimes the silence in our cries is the Lord unwrapping 
getting to the core of it like Jesus did with this woman. We think it's about these issues, but Jesus knows it's about these issues. And in that time of wrestling, it's where he uncovers the layers and gets us to the core of the matter so that we can know he knows us. God knows you. Sit with him. Speak to him. Tell him your honest and truth feelings. Tell him your struggles. Describe it to him like he doesn't know it. And then hear him speak back to you. Hear him talk to you through the word and through his spirit and tell you who he actually made you to be so that he can restore you from the deviation into the original plan that he had for you. That'll take our whole lives for Jesus to do that with us. It's every day, every day, everywhere we go. It doesn't just happen in a worship service in church. I mean, it's so fantastic in a worship service in church when you have that moment in deep worship where you feel I'm with God. He knows me. He sees me. But that can happen at my workplace, at my gym. It can happen when I'm having coffee with somebody. It can happen everywhere because if I live my life in that honesty and openness with God, he knows you. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you today that you are with us in this moment. I pray for every person that's with me in this message. I pray right now, by your Spirit, right in that room or place where they are, they will sense your presence and be so aware that you know them. Your eyes are upon them. You love them. You made them. And you are standing still with them right now. And you know them. So whatever the deepest cry of their hearts are, whatever the, the greatest points of pain and shame is, Lord, that those can be uncovered. They can be brought into the light with you because you know them. And you don't reject us. You embrace us. And you heal us. You set us free. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord be with you today. If you need some prayer, please contact us and we will gladly pray with you in this moment. But we pray that the Lord will be with you as we continue to shape our identity around him and who he is. Bless you. Have a wonderful week.